Well, good morning. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of the teaching team. And great to continue in our series together in the book of Ephesians. I want to introduce a word to you that I think my wife made up. Um, and I think she made it up probably around a decade or so ago. It's the word insta-fury. Insta-fury. It's that feeling you get when something makes you instantly furious. And I think the context in which she invented this word was we were playing racquetball. We used to play racquetball a lot. And uh, we both like to play sports and compete with each other. And there were these times when we would play racquetball where I'd be in the back of the, the court and she'd be toward the front and she would get hit by the ball in the back. And she said as soon as she'd get hit, she just felt like instantly furious. And I, I promise it was an accident whenever it happened, except one time. There was one time that she was beating me really bad and I was like, this will throw her off. And so I hit her and it hit her in the back. But, but that's when she coined the term... Insta-fury. It's that thing where you just react. You don't even think about it. You're just instantly furious. I had this just the other day when I uh, was, was, uh, had my kid's razor scooter. I was trying to move it. And you know those things swing around, the metal of the scooter, and it hit me right on the ankle, and it was just insta-fury, right? Or maybe you have this, like Molly experiences this sometimes when she's out for a run with the kids in the jogging stroller, and there's a car that's like turning, and it's like really close to where she's running, or she's in the parking lot with the kids, and like cars don't seem to notice. It's like instant-fury. Do you ever feel this? I think that we live in a culture that just has insta-fury, we're instantly furious about everything, and outrage is the word you see everywhere. Right? Everybody is outraged. I read an article that, that cracked me up about a bunch of, the, the headline was, Knitters Outraged. <laughs> these, these people who knit were outraged because apparently they had some sort of knitting Olympics, and the Olympic committee or something basically sent them like a cease and desist. You can't use the word Olympics anymore because that's not real. And so the knitters were outraged. And I was thinking, this is, these people have needles. You don't want to outrage them. <laughs> but the knitters were outraged. And then I saw a thing about how dancers were outraged because there was some video, some, some commercial that had a dancer who wasn't really a dancer. And the real dancers could tell that's not a real dancer. And so they were outraged and protesting this company. Outrage, anger, insta-fury, it's everywhere. And we're getting angrier as a culture. There was a survey done last year that said that 49% of men and 53% of women were angrier then than they were the year before. Get that. Because we think anger, oh, that's a guy thing. Actually, it was reporting that women were angrier. 49% of men, 53% of women angrier than the year before. And even though we know we're angry and we can sense this anger boiling up, we, we also are aware that this is damaging. I mean, we see the damage to society. We see the damage to our health, the, all the stress-related uh, sicknesses and things that are coming about. We see the damage to families. Some of you know the damage of anger in a family all too well. You're still living with some wounds from the anger and the outrage that your parents had and the inappropriate ways they dealt with that. Some of you, you, you just you know that pain all too well. And so on one hand, anger is perfectly normal. You get hit in the back with a racquetball, you're going to be angry, especially if it was on purpose. <laughs> you get hit with a scooter, it's going to be angry. Someone is not careful around your kids in a parking lot, you're going to be angry. It's, it's, on one hand, it's just totally normal. On the other hand, I think we'd all agree that the anger in our world and even in our own hearts is beginning to get a little out of control. 
What do we do about that? And what does that kind of anger look like in the life of a Christian, somebody whose life has been made new by Christ, somebody whose life has been set free by Jesus, someone whose new identity is not something that's making them angry, but rather Christ? What does that look like? Well, that's what we're talking about today. What we're doing is we're going through just a little bit verse by verse by verse in Ephesians 4, where Paul is describing what it looks like to live a new life in Christ. In chapters 1 to 3 of the book of Ephesians, he said, listen, if you're in Christ, you have a new identity. And then in chapter 4, he said, if you have a new identity, that demands a new way of living, that you need to live like the new creation that you actually are. And so if you weren't here with us last week, one of the things I told you is, believe it or not, we're actually slowing down in the book of Ephesians, and we're just looking at a verse or at most two verses for about the next four or five weeks, looking at what it looks like to put off the old self and put on the new self. That's what the Apostle Paul said we're to do. Look at verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 4. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He says, there's this way you used to live. I don't want you to live like that anymore. And so jump down to 422. You should put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And you should be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We have this old self, this old us. And he kind of lies dormant in there. And certain situations seem to bring him out. And what Paul is saying is, hey, 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 put him away and put on who you really are in Christ. He started off by saying last week, hey, put off falsehood and lying. Put on speaking truth because, in verse 25, we're members of one another. And now today he's going to deal with the reality of anger. If that's where we're going to go, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we long to be like you. And we learn from your word that you are full of steadfast love and kindness and that you're slow to anger. God, we want to be like that. God, all of us are impacted by anger. Some of us, we express it all too easily and we see the wreckage around us. Some of us, we, we hold it in check externally, but inside it's, it's eating us up. God, others are even now so praying that someone in their home would hear this and would experience the new life of Christ because they're on the receiving end of so much anger and that's making them angry. And so God, we need you. We need your word to speak to us. Not even, Lord, necessarily to tell us something new that we don't know, but to give us a power by your Spirit to live in a new way. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for each of these sections in the book of Ephesians, for these next few verses, what Paul is going to do is say, put off this behavior, put on this behavior because of some new reality. And so that's the order that we're going to follow today as well. And the first thing that Paul says in verse 26 is to put off sinful anger. Put off sinful anger. There's sinful anger that is part of the old you, he says. And he says, put that off. He says this, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. 
That actually is a direct quotation from the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 4, verse 4. Paul just quotes it outright. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So first, put off sinful anger. Notice, get this, look at what it says. Paul doesn't say, don't be angry. Do you see that? He actually says the opposite. He says, be angry. He doesn't say, don't be angry. He says, don't sin. And so this is kind of interesting because uh, it seems there's this opportunity actually for anger to be a good thing. Here's what one commentator and scholar, Clinton Arnold, says about this. He says, anger is different from the other vices that Paul warns against in this section. He sees an appropriateness to anger. He regards it as a proper and even essential emotion. At the same time, however, he considers it as highly volatile and dangerous. So the command here is not don't be angry. The command is don't sin. In other words, there's a sinful kind of anger that needs to be put off. Now get this. Anger is the flip side of love. Sometimes people will be upset when they hear about God's anger or God's wrath against sin. But the reality is anger is the flip side of love. If you love something, you are angry when the thing you love is hurt. Right? If I love my kids and you hurt my kids, I will be angry at you. And that will actually be a reflection of the image of God in me. You hurt God's world. You hurt God's kids. God gets angry. But let's be honest. Most of our anger does lead into sin. We like to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We like to think, oh, my anger is very righteous. Well, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Is it really? But if we're honest, most anger that we feel in our hearts, most anger that rises up, it's not all that righteous. In fact, it often is leading us to sin. Why is that? Well, think about it. If you get angry at the things you love, And if the root of sin is loving the wrong things or loving the right things in inordinate amounts, then when all those things get hurt, we're going to be angry. We're going to sin. right? If if the root of, of sin is idolatry, which is loving something that's not God, and we love that stuff too much, when that gets threatened, we we get angry. Here's what it says in James chapter 4. James, the brother of Jesus, says this. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Do you get what James is saying? He's saying, why are you so upset? Why are you fighting and why are you quarreling? Why, Why even does it maybe go to the extreme of murder in the most extreme cases? Why does that happen? Why? Because you don't get what you want. You desire something. That's the same word that is used for lust throughout the rest of the New Testament. You desire, you lust after something. There's something you want, and maybe it's a good thing that you just want too much, or maybe it's something you shouldn't want at all, but you want it, and you don't get it, and you're blocked from it, and so you get angry. Somebody pointed this out to me a number of years ago. I was telling them about something that I tend to do in my kitchen. I I grew up in a house where... Uh, I was, my parents communicated love by how much food was in the pantry. Any of you have parents like that? Right, and, and food was a big part of kind of how we did life and how we did family. And so to me, a, a, like a really happy home is filled in the pantry with lots of great stuff. 
And I remember a number of years back going to the pantry door. This is on a Saturday. You know, I wasn't really hungry. I was just bored. So what do you do when you're bored? You eat, right? So I go to the pantry and I open it up. I stand there. Nothing looked good. So you know what I did? I went. <sighs> Just loud enough that my wife could hear it. <sighs> I told somebody this, and they said, well, you know what you should have done instead? They said, what well, you should have done instead is you, you should have made a statue of yourself, and you should have bowed down and worshipped it. I said, whoa, 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 what do you mean? And they said, here, here. What you did is you put your comfort, you put your desire for food on a kind of altar. You made yourself into a God. And when you didn't get what you wanted, you got, <clears throat> and it was passive aggressive. You didn't actually say, hey, babe, why is there nothing good in here? You just threw a fit. But what that was, was you wanting something that was your comfort and your sense of an ideal thing. You didn't get what you wanted, so you quarreled in your own little immature way. That's what's going on here. This is why we're angry. Now, this anger, this sinful anger, takes different shapes. And so I want to go through some examples of what this, the shapes this take. And I'm going to go from extreme to less extreme, but all of this would be sinful anger. So the more extreme side of this, sinful anger might be physical. It might be violent, punching, hitting, scratching. Might be throwing things, might be breaking things. It's, it's lashing out in some sort of physical way because I'm angry. It might similarly be verbal, shouting, ridicule, blaming, biting sarcasm, criticism, name calling. You always do that, you never do that. You're so stupid, you're so ugly. It might be physical, it might be verbal. Maybe it's self-destructive. Some kind of substance abuse. Some kind of binging or cutting or harming yourself in some way where you're so angry at yourself or you're so angry at the people around you and you will show them by hurting yourself. Sinful anger might be passive. More like my pantry god was. Maybe it's passive. Maybe it's withholding. Maybe your way of expressing your anger is when your spouse or when someone love that's close to you or that you love, you know, they make you angry, you withhold from them. So you withhold communication. You withhold sex. You withhold presence. You say, I'm not going to be near you. You withhold. Maybe you withdraw. Maybe you intentionally procrastinate in order to passively, aggressively get under their skin. Maybe the sinful anger is internal. Maybe it's just seething under the surface, this kind of chronic irritability. You do a good enough job controlling it with other people, especially other people at work, right? Because they might like impact your career, but then you get home and you're just kind of grouchy to be around. Maybe it's the internal sinful anger of revenge daydreaming. Daydreaming the thing you'd say or the thing you'd do if you just had the opportunity or if you just had more courage. But either way, you're dreaming about it, 
fantasizing, nursing the bitterness and the anger and the rage that probably won't ever come out, but it's in your heart? Are you angry? In your anger, are you sinning physically, verbally, self-destructively, passively, or even internally? Paul says, that's, that's not in line with who Christ is. Put that off. Put that away. That damages you. That damages your, your relationship with God. That damages your relationship with people. It damages the world. Put it away. Put something on instead. Here's what he says to put on. Put on righteous, limited anger. So put off sinful anger. Instead, put on righteous, limited anger. Now, these are my words to kind of summarize what I think Paul is saying here in verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. So in other words, there's a kind of righteous anger to put on. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. That means there's a kind of limited anger to put on. So let's talk about those in order. First, to put on righteous anger. Now, as I said earlier, we're quick to assume our anger's righteous, aren't we? Well, they got too close to my kids. Well, they, you know, they shouldn't have done that. Well, you just don't know what's going on, right? And especially, you know, if you're into politics and you get angry about politics, I know none of you would do that. But, but if you ever, you know, the other people you know who get angry about that stuff. Why do they get angry? Because they assume this is righteous anger. I know the right way the world should be run. I know the right way the government should work. I know the right way that things at the border. I know the right way that education. I know the right way that healthcare. And when people have other ideas, oh, I, I suddenly put on this cloak of this is righteous anger. Is it? People hurt you. People overlook you. People undermine you. Is your anger back at them? Is the desire for vengeance toward them? Is it righteous? How, how do you know? Well, it's interesting to look in the scriptures and to see a number of places where Jesus is described as angry. The Gospels record at least three places where it specifically says that Jesus is angry. And there may be more. I didn't do an exhaustive look, but these, these three pretty quickly came to mind. Here's the first one. is in the book of Mark, chapter 3. There's a place where on a Sabbath, there's a bunch of people gathered in a synagogue, and there's a man there with a withered hand. He has some sort of deformity that apparently he's had for a long time. And Jesus seems to be teaching in front of this group of people at this synagogue. And uh, he brings up this man with the withered hand. And he says, what do you think, guys? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Right? Because on the Sabbath, there was these strict restrictions about how you couldn't do work. Well, is, so, so here's what Jesus is saying. Is healing a work that you can't do on Sabbath? Or is healing actually the thing that the very, the very Sabbath embodies, which is that God restores and gives rest? What do you think? And he actually brings the man with the withered hand up so that everyone can get a little bit better look at him. And what Jesus perceives as he looks out at the crowd is a bunch of people going, not answering your dumb question. He notices indifference. They don't care. They're apathetic. Their answer functionally is, of course you can't heal the guy on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work. And what it says in Mark chapter 3 is that Jesus, looking at the crowd, became angry. And then he healed the man. And right after that, it says the Jews began to plot to kill him. 
Jesus became angry when he saw the indifference, the lack of compassion toward this vulnerable man. There's another place in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, and there's all these kids that are trying to get around Jesus. And uh, it's interesting because in, in our culture, everybody loves kids. At least we all say we love kids, you know. And politicians are all, always trying to, you know, get pictures kissing babies and holding babies and, you know, all that. Here, we like our kids. You know, we, we tolerate other people's kids. But, but, but there's kind of a general cultural sense of kids are good. That's, that's, that's unique to our culture. That, that is not the case in first century Palestine. And so there's all these children who are trying to get to Jesus, and the disciples do what most people did, and they try to block the kids. Hey, no, 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 don't bother him. He's an important teacher. He's an important rabbi. You can't get near him. Don't, don't come over here. And it says that Jesus saw that they were doing this, and he became indignant, is the word that's used. He became extremely angry. Why? Because he, they were blocking the children coming to him. And a key part of Jesus' teaching was... You can't come to the kingdom unless you come like a child. And so the very people who embodied the kind of faith that Jesus was trying to have people embrace, those people were blocked from him, and it made Jesus indignant. It made him angry. There's another place where you read about in John 2, where Jesus had seen that the court of the Gentiles in the temple had been turned into this money-exchanging type place. And this is the thing we don't really totally understand typically when we read it with you know, American Western eyes. We don't understand the whole dynamic of what was happening at the temple. But here's what was happening. Is in order to make a sacrifice at the temple, you had to bring something. You had to bring maybe a lamb, uh, less fortunate families would, would bring a bird or something like that. You would have to bring some sort of animal to be sacrificed. And the, the prerequisite, the expectation was that these animals had to be without blemish. They had to be kind of your best animal. That's what you had to bring. Well, here's what would happen. They'd set up this money exchanging scenario where you would bring, let's say you brought your lamb and you'd say, hey, here's our lamb for the sacrifice. They'd say, whoa, 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 wait. Well, we need to inspect this lamb before you can take this in there. And so they begin to inspect it. And even though you'd inspected it, you'd spent the last three years raising this thing. You knew it was absolutely great. They went, oh, we found a flaw. This one's, this one's not going to work. But we have a deal for you. Because we have some pre-approved temple lambs. And they're for sale just right here. And they would then sell you a pre-approved lamb Take your blemish lamb and put it in the pre-approved pile. And off you go. Well, Jesus sees this. And Jesus sees how this is taking advantage of people. Jesus sees how this is turning the worship of God into this hack commercialism thing. And Jesus gets angry about it. And there's a place, this is amazing. There's a place in John chapter 2 where it says that Jesus sat down and he made a whip of cords that he then went into the temple and he turned over the tables and he's going, you know, Indiana Jones style. What? You know, he's, and people are going, what is this? What's going on? Well, the thing that's easy to overlook in that story is it says he sat down to make a whip of cords. Right? This was not like Jesus, you know, had like some Superman whip of cords. Here it is. No, he, he sat down with, he somehow went and probably bought leather and then sat down and tied it and weaved it and braided it. I don't know how long that takes. At least a half hour, maybe a couple of hours. He, with meditation, 
and intention and foresight and planning got angry. But you know what's interesting? Jesus was constantly mistreated, constantly lied about, constantly accused of false stuff. He was even called the devil. And yet it, that stuff never seemed to make him angry. In his fantastic book, Love Walked Among Us, Paul Miller writes this. He says, remarkably, Jesus never gets angry when people hurt him. The very point where we might blow our stacks. Even on other, another occasion, when the Pharisees called him demon-possessed, he responds matter-of-factly. Because he holds on to his time and schedule so lightly, he doesn't get irritated at being interrupted. Because he owns so little, he has little fuel for the fire. Yet he gets upset with injustice and hypocrisy in others when compassion is blocked. His anger is centered on others' welfare. He also gets upset with anything that inhibits faith. The disciples blocked the faith of the little children. The money changers blocked the faith of the non-Jews. Jesus gets angry at anything that prevents love to people, that's compassion, or dependence on God, faith. That's what made Jesus angry. Not when he was personally hurt, not when he was personally offended, but when you lacked compassion or when you blocked faith. So let me ask you again, is your anger really righteous? Because again, we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt on this. But, but here's the thing that Paul says. Paul says, even if it is righteous, put on limited anger. Put on limited anger. Here's what it says in that next part of verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, deal with it quickly. Now, some people have taken this literally, which is not terrible advice, and have said, you know what? In my marriage, if we ever have a fight, we're just not going to go to bed angry. Listen, great advice. Go for it. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. Paul's not literally saying, you know, if you have a, a fight at night and the sun's already gone down, then you have another 24 hours until it goes down again. To be, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, deal with this quickly. You're angry. You're upset. Maybe it's for unrighteous causes. Repent. Maybe it's for righteous reasons. Then do something about it. But deal with it quickly. Don't, don't nurse it. Don't let it linger. So, so in other words, we're to put on righteous anger, but also put on limited anger for a limited time only. Can you be angry? So deal with it. If you need to forgive it, forgive it. If you need to confront something, confront it. If you need to talk it through, talk it through. If you need to decide to overlook it, because sometimes that's what you have to do. Proverbs says that love overlooks an offense. Sometimes you go, you know what? I'm just not going to worry about this. I'm going to put it away. I'm going to trust it in the Lord's hands. Whatever it is, deal with it. Why? Why? Well, Paul gives a reason. Here's why. Because you don't want to create space for the devil. Put off sinful anger. Put on righteous, limited anger because you don't want to create space for the devil. Look at verse 27. And give no opportunity to the devil. That word opportunity is the word that we get the word topography from. It means a place or a space or a location. Some Bible translators actually translate this as a foothold. Don't give the devil a foothold. What it's saying is that there's a kind of space that's created near our anger. We were at some friend's house the other night, and, uh, 
you know, our, our one-and-a-half-year-old Hank is normally up in a high chair, but uh, they didn't have a high chair. They just had one of these kind of little kid tables, and it was great because he could sit at this little table and, and have dinner. The only problem was this family has a dog, and Hank really likes looking at dogs, but is really, like, spooked by actual dogs being near, right? He, like, he can't stop looking at it, and he goes, He's like, that's his word for dog. So he'll like, look at it, look at me. <sighs> like, I see it. It's right there. I'm worried, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and, and, and one of the kids of the house where we were at, they said, oh, yeah, he's going to have a hard night. I said, why is that? Well, they said, oh, because the dog, it knows that its best chance of getting food is if it goes near the littlest people. <laughs> and so that dog's going to be near him all night lurking. And sure enough, the dog was. You know what? The devil lurks near angry people. Maybe it's righteous anger that just goes on too long. Maybe it's unrighteous anger. The, the devil lurks near there. Because he knows how hard this is to control. He knows how hard this is con to contain. He knows that most often the tightrope of handling our anger in a righteous way, we fall off of it. He knows that. And so he, he lurks by angry people. Some of you maybe have wondered, well, why, why does it feel like there's this thing I just can't break through? Why does it feel like there's this thing I just can't overcome? Why does it feel like just everything's against me? Maybe it's you've invited the devil near your life, near your family, through your anger. That's what Paul's saying. Now, he's not saying that the devil can inhabit you or can possess you if you're a child of God. He's just saying the devil is going to be all around you, tempting you encouraging you to forsake this relationship, encouraging you to react selfishly, tempting you in all sorts of various ways. The devil lurks near angry people. This is what Paul says. Put off sinful anger, put on righteous but limited anger because you don't want to create space for the devil. Now, I mentioned earlier that God is angry because of our sin. But here's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died on a cross receiving the full anger of God for our sins. Think about this. Jesus endured anger from God that he didn't deserve. Not only did he not lash out when people accused him, when people hurt him, when people lied about him, but he actually received punishment for those very sins against him. Why? Why did he do that? Here's why. So that he could destroy anger, so that he could destroy sin without destroying us. And then he rose victorious, and he invites us into the new life of the kingdom, and he says, listen, if you're in me, you can have resurrection power, where you're not just forgive, forgiven from the, 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 the sins in your life, but you're actually given power to live in a new way. Well, what's the power to live in a new way? It's a power to have righteous anger for a limited time. Now think about this. Think about the difference this would make. Think about the healing that would begin to occur in your family. Think about the people in your life that wouldn't have to walk on eggshells around you anymore. Think about the freedom 
and the clarity you'd get from all this anger that's clouding your heart and mind all the time. Think about the opportunities you might see to be able to love. Think about how it might actually improve your health, lower your blood pressure, improve your well-being, and think about how it would witness. It would witness to the world God's in control, God's in charge, vengeance is his, he will repay, I can forgive because I've been forgiven by Jesus. That says a bold thing to a world of insta-fury, to a world of outrage, to a world of we gotta get angry, to say I don't need to get angry. I could, but I don't need to because God's in control. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would bring the healing power of your spirit into our lives even right now so that we might even have the ability to see the anger that's in our hearts, to repent, to turn from it, to embrace a new approach, God, not to prove to ourselves that we can overcome this, but rather to invite you to bear this new fruit of peace in us. Lord, would you do that? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.